Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's guest is running for the Area 6 director. He's a grandmaster and he designs stages for Sir Walter Gun Club. So if you would, go ahead and join me in welcoming Ben Barry to the show. How you doing, Ben? Hey, Dave. I'm doing great. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for coming on the show. And if you would, take a moment and introduce yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Ben Barry. I'm a USPSA shooter. Um, I dabble in in other sports, but USPSA has been the, the primary sport for me for coming up on 10 years now. And as time has gone on, I've, I've gotten more involved both as a shooter and then helping to, to design stages and helping to have input in, in various ways. And that sort of brought me here. I, I've had a podcast. Uh, originally, I, I did one for a few years with, uh, with another guy, the Triangle Tactical Podcast. We did that for a few years. And I've had my own for a while, just kind of putting my thoughts out there and putting things out and seeing what comes back, seeing you know what people think. And here I am. You know, after everything that, that happened last year that I'm sure we'll probably end up talking about, I, I decided to put my name in to run for Area 6 Director and, and see where it goes. Awesome. <clears throat> um, as we mentioned earlier, I'm going to hit you with the, uh, the hardest questions first. Get those <laughs> out of the way, and then we'll move into your shooting background, and then we'll, we won't spend too much time there, and then we'll get right into all the campaign stuff, because I do have a bunch of questions, There's and like you said, there's plenty to talk about, so question number one, what's your favorite movie? Mm. Okay, write them off the list for Area 6. <laughs> <laughs> I... Honestly, like if you if you made me like sit down and just watch like anything, I'd I'd probably say the Mummy. Like it's just it's it's funny every time. Uh, it's good, lighthearted humor, and uh, it's not it's not trying to be anything that it's not. Okay, so not like the nineteen fifties horror, the Mummy. No, no, Brendan <laughs> Fraser, uh, Rachel Weisz. Yeah, gotcha. What's that? Okay, so you like the um, comedy genre. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, a good, uh, good war movie is good too. A good, uh, you know, serious movie is fun now and then. But you know, if you just want to sit down and watch something and have a good time and pass uh, pass ninety minutes, that's a there are worse ways to do it. Okay, have you seen John Wick four? I haven't. Uh, I, honestly, I was uh, I was a little turned off after three. Uh, it just kind of dragged on and on. I was like, where is this going? Uh, I know some people liked it, but it, it was. Uh, it didn't hold up to the first two, in my opinion. But I, uh, people have told me that that the fourth one, the fourth one brings it back. So I'm I'm excited at some point to see it. But we've got a we've got a two year old at home, and uh, she's actually potty mm. training right now. So we're we're kind of uh, trying not to go out in public. So I think we'll probably hit it up when it when it comes to streaming. I think that's the plan. I get it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, that that adds a whole other set of questions then for later as to why you're campaigning for area six with a two-year-old at home <laughs> all right question number two your favorite book my favorite book um i think the i think if i had to recommend a, a single book to somebody and this is i feel like this sounds pretentious but it would be uh letters from a stoic by seneca um it's uh 
one of those you can just you know read over and over again and uh you know he's always got something different to say and it's you know it's something written by someone 2000 years ago but you know you someone you feel like you could sit down and have a beer with so you're saying if you, if we had time machines you would go back and sit down and have a beer with this guy oh yeah absolutely okay i like it now i don't know if you're into the whole superhero thing um if you are who is your favorite superhero if not like me then you can go with who's your um favorite historical figure superhero or history yeah i mean honestly i mean i think you gotta in terms of in terms of superheroes right you've got superman people and you've got batman people right are you kind of the uh the the the, the idealistic everything can be great type person or are you here's the dark reality sometimes you have to you have to fight the enemy on their own terms and uh i'd like to think you know there, there's there's something to be said for both I, I don't know that i can really pick but i see i see both sides in that one so i don't know that okay. i can that i can necessarily settle for one but uh i mean if we go outside sort of the mainstream ones uh let me just say rorschach from uh watchmen he's he's certainly a character Okay. All right. Now, your favorite gun and caliber, and they don't have to be linked together. You could, a, a pistol of some sort could be your favorite gun, and a rifle caliber could be your favorite caliber. So, I, honestly, I'm, to me, the, the gun is, is such a tool just to get the job done that for being just an all around tool, it's got to be a Glock 17 in 9mm. Uh, you know, it's, if I had one gun for the rest of my life to do everything, that would be it. Um, you know, I, I shoot 10 folios. They're fun. But, you know, if you told me I had to shoot Shadow 2s or Can X or something else, I could make do. Okay. Now, the, the last question I try to kind of um, personalize it to the individual. So I'm going to use one of Jay Beal's favorite questions right here on you. And that is, what does your make ready look like? It's actually short and to the point. So get the gun out, put the mag in, rack the round, lower the hammer, holster back, uh, gun back in the holster, keep the hand on the gun for maybe a second or two. And, you know, th there's nothing that's going to happen in, in 30 seconds at, at make ready that that's going to make a difference. And, uh, when I, when I put my hands down at my sides, I'm just thinking about how I want the gun to feel, you know, the, 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 the sort of sensation of the, the hand hitting the gun, you know, where I want the grip to start. And then from there, the draw and the rest of the stage, or if it's like a table pickup, obviously, you know, the, the feeling of lifting the gun up into my hand, but, but just sort of focusing on that, that first lead domino key. Okay. Um, I have a question a little bit later. So we're going to revisit that last portion of that answer then. All right. Sure. So those, those are the, those are the hard questions. So there you go. <laughs> the rest of it will be easy. Um, so when did you first shoot a gun? It was, uh, yeah. So it would have been, I would have been about 20 years old. I had some, I had a friend in college who, uh, shot some mighty PA and I sort of, went shooting with them for the first time and it was basically but in in 
service of getting ready to shoot my first IDPA match. Uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really that interested in, in just punching holes in paper at a square range. But once I, once I became aware of kind of this idea of, you know, moving around and shooting and timed scoring and all that, uh, that that's, that's sort of what I wanted to be a part of. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember if I read it somewhere or, or heard you on your podcast or somebody else's, but I heard your first match was an IDPA and you didn't own a gun, but the person was like, Hey, I know something you would enjoy. So that's also, I didn't realize that was also the first time you shot a gun. Yeah. I think I like, uh, I had a little bit of practice before my first one. Uh, but even my first match, I was just with a borrowed gun, just going, I mean, as slow as you can imagine. Uh, but, um, they were, they were very welcoming and, you know, it was one of the ways you could just show up and shoot. And, uh, I just jumped right in with both feet. Now, my question is, how did this guy know that you would enjoy it when one, you've never shot a gun and you don't, you didn't even own a gun? Uh, well, I, so it was actually a girl, uh, and, uh, I don't know. I think she just, she just had a, we, I don't know. We were talking, we were, we were talking to libertarian type stuff. I think we must've probably talked at some point about gun rights and, uh, you know, she was like, you've never shot a gun, you know, cause she, her family grew up with guns where I didn't. And, uh, and so she was like, oh yeah, just like come shoot my family. We, we do this IDPA thing. And, uh, and so I think it was just one of those where the basically the first person that I met who was, who was willing to take me to the range. I took, I took her up on that offer. Okay. So she just had an inkling based on stuff you guys have been talking about. So. Okay. I think so. All right. Well, good for her. Now, as yeah, I understand I, it, I, what a debt I owe her for sure. Yeah. yeah I, I would have path. gotten into guns eventually, but yeah, it would have been a few more years down the road. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now I understand your initial. So uh, first off, how do you go from shooting your first match being IDPA, not even owning a gun, not really shotting a, a shot a gun before, to transitioning to USPSA and a GM? What does that time frame and space look like? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I would have shot my first match in in 2010. Uh, made. IDPA master, I think in, in 2013, which is also the year that I sort of started to feel like I was topping out in IDPA. I, I had shot, there were definitely, I was not winning all the matches that I was going to, but I was definitely starting to be competitive. And I could see that the, the, the people that I was competing against often shot both USPSA and IDPA. And to be totally honest, I had some friends who were primarily USPSA shooters, but they would come and shoot IDPA for fun. And they, they said to me, Hey, you should, you know, here's when this match is, you should show up and come shoot it. And so by being those, those people that shot both sports, they actually helped to, to bring me over, which I think, you know, I mean, it's obviously counterproductive that all this sort of enmity such as it is, I think it's mostly social media bluster, but this, you know, IDPA versus USPSA thing, I, I don't really see the reason that it has to be a versus thing. When I'm playing one game, I use gear and follow the rules of that game. And when I'm playing a different game, I use the gear appropriate to that game and, and play that game. And so I had those, uh, those friends that I'm still friends with to this day, honestly. Uh, and, and they sort of brought me over and I shot USPSA for a few years. The, the thing that really kind of launched it was getting serious about practicing in late 2014, 2015, joined a gun club 
and started practicing dry firing on a schedule. And so from in 2015, I made a class in 2016, I made M class and then April fool's day, 2017, uh, I made GM in production. Okay. It was like every year you're knocking down different classifications as you go. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, initially, initially classified C class in 2013. Yeah. 14 was B 15 was a 16 was M 17 was GM. So it wasn't like a, a, a meteoric rise or anything. I just ground away at it. Right. You just stayed steady and kept on knocking them down. Now, what point did, um, Mr. Van Halen, AKA Steve Anderson, uh, when did you attend that class? What year was that? Yeah. So that was, that was actually what kind of kicked that off. So that was November of 2014 that I kind of had that realization. And so, you know, basically the going into that class with him, I would have told you that the way you get better at shooting is shooting lots of matches and then, you know, taking some private instruction, the idea that you could do what he did and just dry fire in your basement and, and make grandmaster and develop the skills to do that. That was, that was a foreign concept to me at the time. And, you know, I thought, I thought I needed to, to just, to just do, do a lot more actual competitions. And so the idea of, of working on skills and, and isolated drills and that sort of thing was something that, that he really opened my eyes to. And so, yeah, after that, I, I joined the gun club where I'm currently a member and I, you know, now work, help help out with the stages there and started live firing and dry firing and and that's really what took things from a slow a slow rise to to really uh picked up the pace okay now so this is where i want to go back for just a moment to your make ready you know steve is all about you can't you got to have one focus when you're getting ready to start your stage, do you have a focus phrase or something that you focus on right before the timer goes off? It, for me, it, it really is. It is that feeling. It's not so much a, a word or a phrase. It, it's that it's, it's what I want to feel in my hands sort of going to the gun. Because if, if my particularly if my right hand gets on the gun and sort of is in the right spot, then everything falls into place after that. I find when, you know, when I try and really, think about going fast or grabbing the gun, you know, in a particular way, I mess up the draw. And then you feel like for the rest of the stage, you feel like you're playing catch up. And so just really that, that initial feeling of, of the web of my hand up in the beaver tail and the, the knuckle of my right hand, just coming up under the trigger guard and just kind of clamping right like that, not particularly hard, but just in the right spot. And then my mm. left hand kind of coming across to be ready to receive the gun. Just that, that sort of almost it's not even really a mental picture. It's, it's really a feeling I would describe it as. Yeah. It's that tactile thing. You know, I get mm -hmm. it. Okay. Oh, that's pretty interesting. All right. You're the, you're the first person that I've, I've heard that isn't visualizing something or whatever, you know, and you're making that grasp, getting that feel and then ready to go. Okay. You, do you plan on, um, competing at nationals this year? Uh, not really. No, um, I'm not, I, I just based on the, the, the time commitment that it would be, I've decided to sort of spend, spend my days off and my resources to go to smaller, more regional matches that I think better represent the things that I'd like to see for the sport. So for example, there's a, um, a, uh, 
interesting match that that's being run by Leif Kunkel out of Bluegrass Sportsman's League out in Kentucky. It's sort of a, a revival of the old battle in the bluegrass, uh, but he's trying to make it much more about a community. So like there's no, no shooting on Sunday. It's uh, everybody shoots Saturday. And then every, the idea is everybody will stay for dinner afterwards and, and sort of have this social atmosphere. So you're actually building community, not just, you know, people shooting and then, and then hitting the road, which I think was really interesting. And I wanted to be a part of that. And then I'll be shooting area six. And uh, so I, I mentioned the, the two year old, two year old at home, we actually have uh, baby number two is on the way uh, due at the beginning of June. So the only match that I have planned after that is the, the North Carolina section, which since Stephanie, my wife is the section coordinator, we're, uh, we're kind of on the hook for that one. But I, I tried to plan wow. everything in, in the first half of the year this year. All right. So I have two kids. Um, I, I, so I told, and they're two years apart. So yours are right around the same time frame. Um, it definitely makes things difficult. Is your, this is a little sidetrack question, but is your wife still going to try to be the section coordinator or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's the plan. I mean, so in terms of, um, I mean, she's really done her best to automate as much of the process of doing things like distributing slots. We're, we're a pretty, I mean, honestly, aside from that, there really isn't that much for a section coordinator to, to do. Um, there's, you know, the logistics of, of running nationals, which is, you know, organizing the sponsors and, and the, the registration and all that. And she's got sort of a process down for that, having done it a few years. And, you know, I, from talking to her, her attitude is it would be sort of more work to hand it off. Um, of course, if, if somebody is raring to go, if, if somebody, you know, bright and, and bushy tailed really just can't wait to be the next North Carolina section coordinator, then, you know, feel free to send her an email, but nobody is waiting in the wings, you know, uh, itching to do it. And so she's happy to, to just sort of keep chugging along behind the scenes, keeping everything low drama and just, just getting things done. Okay. Can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds okay. like a horse is clip clopping by. Yeah, pretty much. It's a, a great Dane drinking water. So <laughs> I'm going to pick up the questions here in just a minute when he's done. Holy cow. And hey, it's about, little, go ahead. Well, dog noise in, 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 in honor of Steve Anderson. There you go. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, that that's pretty remarkable that you guys are going to continue with her being the section coordinator and you running for area six and possibly being area six at the same time with two small ones. Um, so good on you there. Now, what is your, as a USPSA grandmaster and shooter and all of that, not even talking um, possible area six director, but just for shooting purposes, what is your goal in USPSA? Are you looking to be a national or a world champion someday or no i i think i think the i think the window for that is probably closed i definitely would would like to keep getting better every year i'd like to feel like i'm i'm continuing to improve continuing to learn things uh i think it being state champion you know in a very competitive division like carry optics would certainly be be cool um being you know, potentially area cha champion might, might still be in the cards, but I think going, going to the national level probably is a, would, would be an unrealistic stretch. And, you know, especially with sort of having, having gotten into the, get, gotten involved with the sport on the other side as, 
you know, both helping with the state match and, uh, and, you know, potentially putting my name in for, for the area match. And even if I'm not the area director, if it's something that I can work, you know, I'll probably be working the match more than, than shooting it, depending on how things go in the future. But to me, the, the, yeah, the goal is just keep learning, keep feeling like I'm getting a little bit better every year and take what I've learned and, and share it with, uh, with anyone who's curious to listen. One of the most rewarding things that I've done in the past few years has been helping to start a, a it's actually an outlaw match. It's, it's USPSA ish. We use sort of fault lines for, for some stages, but it's a time plus scoring, no gear rules, just one run, what you brung most stages, you know, there's no capacity limit. You just have to do a reload sometime during the stage, but just being able to, to be that place for people to come and shoot their first match to get into the sport with a, you know, a simple 12, 14, 16 round stage kind of match, uh, being more approachable uh, has, has been a lot of fun and, you know, getting to meet folks that are, that are just starting out on their journey and kind of try and point them in the right direction and say, you know, Hey, here's, if you want to learn more about this, go here. Having, having that opportunity is really, um, like I said, it's been very rewarding. Okay. Um, now you had mentioned that you, how did you get into the podcast business when you guys started up triangle tactical? Yeah. So at the time, uh, Luke apps, the, the, the guy that originally started it, he had, he had started triangle tactical as a, as sort of a review website and got into competition. And he and I just kept kind of talking back and forth. And, you know, I had ideas of things that would be interesting to talk about. And so he was like, why don't you just come on the show, you know, rather than sending me emails about the stuff, just come on the show. Let's, let's talk about them. <laughs> uh, and I was like, okay, sure. I didn't know I, I had, I'd never done anything like that before, but, but I figured what the heck, let's give it a try. And yeah, he and I, we just, we just enjoyed the heck out of sitting down, kind of reviewing everything that had happened in the last week. You know, it was, it was much more of a, a general kind of gun show. We focused on competition, but you know, we talked about some, you know, gun news. We talked about North Carolina political stuff related to guns. You know, if the, there was some bill happening and, uh, yeah, we, you know, we, we recorded an episode every week for two and a half years and had a, had a good old time with it. And, uh, yeah, it was just, it was one of those things. He just, he asked and, uh, I went for it and, and it worked out. Okay. Um, now when that ended, what made you decide to keep going with your own? Basically just the fact that I, I still felt like I had, I had things to say, um, to, to be honest, the thing that, that made that particular arrangement unsustainable was just the way that, the way that we did the show we basically spent four to five hours on a sunday we would you know get together either on a zoom or you know in person sort of plan out all you know, talk through all the stuff that we had to talk that we thought we were going to talk about plan out the show notes and then you know we'd record an hour-long podcast which you know always takes a little bit longer than an hour and all that and just having to dedicate sort of the, the time with another person on a weekend just got to be unsustainable uh, but mm -hmm. after, you know, after a year or two off from that, I think, I think he, he kept going without me, but I think I dropped out around middle of 2016 and I launched short course, uh, beginning of 2018, you know, I, I still had this itch, right. I still had these topics, things that I wanted to talk about. And so I just write them down and write them down. And eventually I was like, okay, I've got enough here to, to keep doing a show, but can I basically just do, you know, half, half of a show as a one man show, you know, so do a, do a 20, 25 minute show on my own instead of this sort of hour long thing. 
And over time, it's evolved to be much more competition focused. I don't really talk about local North Carolina stuff as much or, you know, concealed carrier IDPA stuff as much, but it's, it's been an interesting outlet. There's a really, there's something very interesting about having a deadline and having to produce and saying, you, you know, you might have a couple topics that don't quite feel ready, but you got to put something out this week and keeping yourself on that deadline is, is an interesting form of pressure. And so I think it, I, I really enjoy that because it sort of gets me to, um, maybe take stuff that, that I would sit on and, you know, be a little bit of a perfectionist about it and just go with it. And, and, you know, I have a few hours to record and edit and get the podcast posted on Thursday night. And so it's a, it's a challenge, but it's always an interesting one. And I, um, I, I just enjoy it and hopefully people get something out of it. Okay. How's the feedback been so far? I, generally good. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't really get that much. Um, I, I have my email in every show and I might get an email or two a month. So I get a, you know, a few hundred downloads. So, but, uh, you know, for the most part, it's, uh, people will come up to me in person sometimes and, you know, talk about it, but I actually really, I say on the show all the time, you know, if you have some thoughts or, you know, you're seeing something different, email me, let me know, because I want, I want it to be kind of a two-way conversation. I, I only really see this small bubble that I'm in. And honestly, one of the things about running for area six that I've really enjoyed is, is people reaching out and, and saying either, are you aware of this? Or what do you think about this? Or you're talking about this, you know, have you heard this side of the issue? And in most cases I hadn't heard about, it. I hadn't heard about it. And so being made aware and sort of being more plugged into what's happening outside of the sort of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, bubble has has been really interesting yeah it's hard to it's hard to keep a thumb on everything that goes on in uspsa it's a big big organization with a lot of people mm -hmm. so i get it and and don't feel bad i don't i'm i'm about fifty thousand downloads and i don't get much more feedback than you if any so people just don't reply or don't you know have any comments so okay yeah, I assume they enjoy it because they, they everything keeps getting downloaded. So okay, we'll keep going. Exactly. Now, so one last question about the podcast because it was interesting to me that it started in one area with with a friend, and then you dropped out, and it it seems to have morphed into just a USPSA podcast now. Was that intentional or was that just how it evolved? Yeah, I think so. It definitely, so there, there were really two, two main periods. So that first year in 2018, uh, I think I put out something like 44 or 45 episodes over the course of a year. So, you know, I, I basically, I think I launched it in February and recorded an episode almost all the way through the middle of December or something like that. And my goal then was to be more kind of well-rounded and talk about different topics. And I sort of completed that challenge of putting out an episode a year, took a little bit of a break. And then for the, for the inter intervening between then and the middle of, uh, of 2022, I would release a few episodes a year just because I, I didn't sort of have a focus. It, it, it was, I didn't have an identity in the sense that I didn't really know what I was talking about. And then, yeah, since, since sort of launching this and, and, and a lot of it too, honestly, as I was feeling burned out, I felt like. USPSA with everything that was happening 
with Mike Foley and then Foley getting removed and and the board stepping in and the interim president and everything, it just it felt like I didn't even know what what to say. And so I, I just felt very burnt out. I wasn't competing a lot because the whole thing just it was very demotivating. I just really didn't want to be a part of it. And then, yeah, since since this sort of new chapter with me putting my name in to, to run for Area 6 and then, yeah, it has it has recently become basically solely focused on on USPSA, the issues facing USPSA and, you know, to some degree, the 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 adjacent parts of the shooting sports. So, you know, how you know USPSA interacts with outlaw matches or with three gun. But it's definitely through that that lens of USPSA, just because that is sort of where most of my focus is. Okay, so that's a great segue to start the talk about the Area 6 director. So what specifically, since the time Foley was removed, what specifically triggered you into deciding to run for Area 6 director? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it really was the accumulation of a number of things. So the the way that the the, the way that the everything was handled after Foley was removed, um, you know, everything from the, the, or even, I mean, around the same time. So the way that it seemed like the, the, the rules around raising the weight limit in production and allowing flashlights and magnets right before nationals seemed like a decision not being made with sort of due consideration all the way up to, you know, the new calibration rules and then up to the, the board sort of rewriting the bylaws in a number of important ways right before, you know, during this interim period between the presidency. And it just seemed like, it seemed like the, the, the board was not really accountable. They weren't really listening to the members and they felt like they could just kind of do whatever they wanted. And then the, the thing that just really was a bridge too far was when they lined up a bunch of members and banned them for mean saying mean stuff on the internet. And you know, to me, when you run for a position of public office, you even if it's a minor, you know, director role within a within or, within an organization, this is an organization of thirty five thousand people. There are going to be a lot of people saying a lot of things, and the internet's a mean place, and you're just going to have mean stuff said about you. And I know that. And you know, if I'm elected, I, I know that that's going to happen. And so this idea that because someone was being critical and pointing out legitimate issues with the organization. Were they doing it in the most tactful way? No. But were they real issues? Yes. And so the idea that when someone would bring up issues, they would get banned, not even so much to silence them, but as a message to the to, to everybody else, hey, keep your head down, don't criticize the board, or you might be next. That's when I thought, okay, this is we're we're reaching a an inflection point. And at that point, I knew that the that the election for Area Six was coming up, and I knew that the <laughs> the cycle for filing and then you know getting on the ballot and then the election being six months before the term ended, it was sort of a long process. And so I just said, all right, I'm just gonna just gonna put my name in, see where it goes, and uh, see how things unfold. Because again, I you know I put my name in a year before the election happens and a year and a half before the term would even start, and so. In that time, all kinds of other stuff has has happened, and I, I just again I, I hope that what I'm what I'm putting out there is what people feel like would represent them on the board, and that the the sort of ideas and and the general framework, right? It's not so much do you specifically agree with me about issue X or issue Y, 
but do you think that I will be, that I'll sort of listen and represent the members in a way that they actually feel like they have a voice on the board? And, and that's, you know, I, I want to be the person who feels heard. And so I, I want to be that for all the members in area six. So is that your platform then? Or do you have a platform for running, meaning, you know, your, your one overall thought or your points of thought are, this is why I'm running. This is who I am. I am running for, to give everybody in area six, a voice and not just certain groups of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I do think that I, I have certain issues that I'm, that I'm passionate about and certain perspectives that I would push for, uh, you know, for example, one that, that I'm well known to be associated with is the idea of raising the, the, the capacity and production from 10 to 15. That's an issue that I would love to, you know, have a chance to move the needle on. But I also realize that it's not the most pressing thing to the health of the sport. There are other much more serious issues around the board being perceived as legitimate and just, are they actually just silencing critics? Um, are they financially burning the, the organization's reserves down? Uh, you know, how, how are members actually being communicated with, are they being given insight into why decisions are being made or is it just, you know, here's your choice, suck it up. So, you know, I, I certainly have issues that, that I would like to have opportunities to make a difference on, but I also realize that anyone coming into the board is just going to be one of nine votes. And so to some degree, yes, the, the priority is a learn your way around, right? make build relationships, be able to, to, to form a consensus. And if nobody else, you know, for example, I, I actually had a, a good discussion with Frank Rizzi, the new area seven director, he and I had some back and forth, uh, on, on Instagram about the, the production 15 thing. And he says, it's not a priority for him. He doesn't think it needs to change. And, you know, to anybody who's paying attention, he's, he is likely one of the people that, that I would be working with. And so if there's not interest in, you know, changing something like that, well, then, then I'm not going to, you know, beat that dead horse. It's, it's going to be about fixing the issues that a are, are pressing to the health of the sport, which I think do involve the credibility of the sport, right? The, the reputation that we've gotten for banning people purely for criticizing the board, I think is, is going to be a hard one to walk back, but it's, I mean, the damage is there. The only thing to do is the only thing to do is manage it. Um, fix the financial so, issues. Go ahead. Right. So do me a favor then. And at, at this moment right now, tell us what your definition of transparency is and how it pertains to you being an area director. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think it, it means communicating as much as is legally and practically allowed. It means why should the members not know as much about the, the finances? I mean, at, at the most recent, um, set of board meetings, they talked for four hours about the finances and there was two bullets, three bullets about it in the minutes, you know, what are they talking about for four hours? So whether it's being a part of having more forthcoming minutes or you know, voting to, to, to waive confidentiality before the minutes are proposed, uh, published, which I think to me that, that the whole, um, the whole 
what do you even want to call it, series of events around that where it was done for, for one, one meeting but not the next uh, has been interesting. But just to, to whatever degree is possible, anything that I think is in, in the member's interest, sharing it. And again, if it's, if it's something, unless there is a very good reason to keep it secret, I, the, the amount of, the amount of keeping people in the dark and, and not communicating things like budgets and policies and what's actually happening, I think is, uh, it makes me think that there's something to hide certainly. And so again, improving the minutes, improving the communication, you know, the, there was this idea that the the USPSA podcast would have the board members on it and, and talk about these issues more. Uh, I haven't seen a, an episode of that in a, in a long time. And so I just, I don't, I don't see the, the communication coming from the board about what they're doing and, and more importantly, why, you know, Hey, we made this decision and here's, here was the discussion. Here was the pro, here was the con here's, here's how the vote went. You know, at least people feel like they have some input or some understanding of, of why things are, are happening the way they are and why money is being spent in their name, for example. So would you, would you use your podcast then to communicate to your audience? Oh yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, to, to whatever degree is, you can. yeah, yeah right. right. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything that would get me brought up, you know, for, for removal, because obviously I think that would, that would, that would open myself up as a target. And, you know, for example, I think it's an interesting, um, it is an interesting case study that Scott Arnberg, who just took over as area three after the, the very first meeting that he was a, a member of did a, did a video podcast with, um, uh, with Joel Park from Practical Shooting mm -hmm. Training Group, where they talked yep. through the meeting. He gave his perspective on it. He sort of gave some context. He was very measured, very, very discreet. He wasn't, you know, saying anything about anyone. He was just kind of giving a little more perspective. That that's the kind of thing that I think we need more of. And he said in that in that agree. Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. Uh, but he said in that episode that he wanted to do one you know, for, for every meeting if he could. And, and we haven't heard anything else since, and maybe this is conspiratorial, but I can only assume that, that that is because he's probably been told that if he keeps doing stuff like that, then they'll maybe bring him up on some kind of, uh, you know, issue and try and get him off the board. And that basically he needs to keep his mouth shut. Maybe it's something more innocent than that. And, you know, he's just been busy. I, I don't know. But the fact that, that we had that brief sliver of, of communication, that's the kind of thing that, that I'd like to see more of and, and be for the membership to, to whatever degree I can. Okay, good. Um, I, I, and I agree with you. That's why I'm saying good. And I also saw that and my hat's off to Scott and Joel for doing that because I thought that was awesome. Even for those of us not in Area 3, just to hear, you know, someone who's a director on the board of directors talking about their meeting and just giving a little more insight, like you said, I think that's fantastic. That is what we need more of. Even if it's just each meeting, you select a different area director to talk about it. Okay, this month it'll be Ben. Okay, next month it'll be, you know, area eight. The month after that it'll be area two, whomever. But, you know, put something out where someone can actually get up there and talk and explain what's going on. So I like that. That's awesome. And I had written a whole bunch of stuff down here, too. <laughs> I kind of feel like you, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, people are getting banned for 
saying mean things on the internet. I don't disagree with that. And I, but I think there's always a, a, a little bit of a shock when people get into a position of leadership and then they get hit with um, some angriness that they didn't expect and they weren't prepared for. Because I've always said the higher you go up in the chain of anything, the more negativity you're going to hear because you're in a position to hear it. So you have to be prepared for that. You have to expect it and you can't take it personal. It may sound personal and there may be some people who are, who try to make it personal, you know, to kind of needle you or whatever. But when you're in that position, you're going to hear it. And look, the politics of USPSA is very much a mirror of what's going on in the United States and that, you know, a good chunk, let's say 20,000 people are active in USPSA because that's about what it was the last number I heard, pretty close to that. Um, if half the people don't like you, that's 10,000 people. <laughs> that's a lot of negative comments. You know what I mean? 100%. And and that's the thing is, um, again, I, I you can't make everyone happy when you're in an elected position. But I think trying to trying to at least when people are giving you criticism, you're hearing the truth. Um, one of the things that I found is in a lot of cases when people are saying nice things to you, they're just saying, you know, they're, they're in a lot of cases telling you things you already know. And so in a lot of cases, when someone's willing to be honest, even if it's even if it's negative, I at least know where they stand. And so, again, to me, you know, my goal is not not to be friends with everyone, but to try and best represent the, the members of USPSA. And I mean, again, I, I think, yes, there, there is an element that people will just say mean stuff because they, for whatever reason, just because they've, they're, they're mean spirited person. But to some degree, the, the reason I think that the discourse got to the level that it got to was because it, it, it was intentionally provocational in some cases, because nothing else was, was, was getting a reaction. Nothing else was working. And I don't, that's not my style. I don't agree with it, but I, I understand it. I, I understand the idea that we're going to, we're going to keep pushing this until something, until they have to respond. And, you know, was it, was it any one person's personal failure that, that nationals was scheduled to, to happen in a state where it was against the law to travel in with magazines that held more than 15 rounds? It's not any one person's fault, but at the same time, it happened and the board, you know, when it was pointed out and, and issues were raised about it, instead of saying, yeah, we screwed that one up, it won't happen again, they started going after the people who pointed out the issues. And to me, when someone's pointing out legitimate issues and you go after them, all you do is you send a signal to everyone else to say, don't stick your head up or it'll get chopped off too. And that's, that's, that's. I mean, that's just a poisonous culture. You have to recognize people raising issues, whether it's in polite terms or not. If it's a real issue and it's something that could get members or even international competitors in real hot water, whether you like it or not, you got to listen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Highlighting a question to come back to at the end. So now... I know you've put out a couple of episodes about rule changes and stuff. Um, what of the rule changes is your favorite and which 
is your least favorite? Ooh, uh, gonna have to try and <laughs> try and uh, scan back through the memory banks of kind of what. Okay. What well, recently. Hmm. With with what you said earlier, it almost sounds like to me one of your least favorite was just the timing of the the changes for carry optics um, with the weight change, um, the magnet, flashlight, that type of thing. Um, but is there anything that stands out in your mind as to that was a good rule change, and that's something that needed to be done? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely one that that comes to mind is the the most recent rules audit updated the definition of short medium and long course to remove any reference to number of positions which the the way they used to be phrased a short course uh was a stage that required no more than two rounds and no more than or sorry no more than 12 rounds and no more than two shooting positions which and a medium course required no more than 20 rounds and no more than three positions so if you had a stage that required 18 rounds but four positions in my reading of the old rules, it was an 18 round long course. Long course just says it's less than 32 rounds at uh, level three and above matches. That was the plain reading of the rule. I am told the way that it was interpreted by some range masters and RMIs is that if you if it was if it required more than three positions, you had to add targets so that it required more than 21 more than 20 rounds. Um, and I actually had this done two stages that I submitted two big matches, uh, they would add targets because it was like an 18 round stage that required four positions and they would add a couple targets so that it was a 22 rounder so that it was a legal long course where to me, <laughs> there was nothing that said if it was 18 rounds, it, it couldn't be a, uh, an 18 round long course. So anyway, there was, there was a lot of disagreement in how that was interpreted and it never made sense. Um, it didn't align with the IPSC definitions. I never understood why the, why the, the number of positions made any sense to have in there. And at the end of the day, the, the, there are so few rules that only apply to short and medium courses and not long that it's kind of an irrelevant difference anyway. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think that was one of those things that was in there that just made no sense and having it removed is, is an improvement. Okay. Now you. I don't remember if it was on Manny's podcast or where I heard it. Um, and maybe it was your podcast. I, to be honest, I don't remember. Um, but you said you made mention that going over budget for a national level competition would be okay to a certain extent. Now to you, is there like a, a percent that's okay? Like 10% would be okay, but more than that would not, or, or you just play it by, feel how does that work yeah i mean um i think it all it all depends on what accomplishes the goals of the nationals so for example if it was something where yeah i mean 10 20 percent close to, to break even if you're doing one big nationals a year let me put it a different way if you if you if you start from the position that your nationals should primarily be either either break even or be a, a profit center that's going to guide all kinds of downstream decisions and to me something like nationals the the decisions should primarily be around is this going to be the best match in the country is this going to be an opportunity to bring together shooters 
from all over the country, bring together staff from all over the country, bring together the biggest sponsors or, well, sponsors at any level. Is this going to be, to me, nationals should be should be the grand finale of the shooting season. It should be like SHOT Show, right? Everybody should should be there. It should be this big event. It, it, I mean, it should be like the world shoot to some degree. And so if for whatever reason, nationals doesn't turn a profit, but the membership fees are enough to to subsidize that, yeah, on principle, I'm, I'm fine with that. Now, it shouldn't be blowing $500,000 regularly. At that point, you should be asking yourself, do we need to charge more for sponsorships? Do we need to raise the match fee? You know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be an iterated, just dumpster fire of, of money. But I think my attitude would be that for the, for the participants and the, the people at home, nationals should be a spectacle and it should be the biggest event. It should be the thing that people come home from and say, Hey guys, like I saw this at nationals. We should try and do that at our club. It should be the place where ideas are shared. It should raise the bar. It should be the best match on the calendar every year. And so if you set that as the primary goal, and then you say, and minimize the amount of, of lost money or try and break even, then, then I think that's a, a good hierarchy to have it in. But if it's something where airplane tickets just go up and, you know, to get the staff that you want to have, you have to, to compensate them more then I'm fine with that, right? Having, having nationals be the, the biggest, best event of the year, I think comes first. And then having the, having the, the, the sort of financial side be as close as possible to breaking even, I think comes second, but to your point, like not, not, not losing huge amounts of money, but I think having the, having the quality be the guiding star. And obviously this sort of implies that you're doing fewer of them because it's basically impossible to have four matches a year that are all the best match of the season, uh, scheduling and everything difficulties aside. But yeah, I think, I think if you, nobody expects, you know, a something, uh, I don't know, like the Olympics, that's kind of a bad example because the, the cities, you know, always pay a huge amount of money and, and never really make it back. But something like that, where it should be, it should be about quality first and lose a responsible amount of money. That's the other piece is if you're going to lose money, it should be in the budget going in. You should know, Hey, these are our staff costs. These are our range costs. This is what we're going to bring in on revenue. Even if we fill the match, we are projecting before we even open registration, we're projecting a $200,000 loss. And then when you hit it, it's not a surprise and you can budget for it. I think a lot of the issues right now are around the lack of financial tracking. So we don't even know how much a nationals loses. We know it's a lot because the numbers on the account don't, you know, they keep getting smaller, yeah. but the, the level of financial tracking isn't even there to, to know before the match happens. So I think that would, that would be the other condition is if you're going, you know, it's like, it's like approving a deficit budget, you can do it, but you need to know what it's going to be going in and you need to, to sort of look it straight in the eye and say, we're going to decide to do this because it's worth it, but it shouldn't be something that just happens by accident and just year over year every year you lose more and more money and you can't say why that's, that's not acceptable. Right. It has to balance out elsewhere. Sure. Mm -hmm. You could lose money in one spot as long as you're gaining money in another and it's all got to balance in the end. Yeah. And, and I know you, like you, you had mentioned you wanted to talk about nationals live streaming and that sort of thing, but I think that's a part of it too, is to me, 
you know, could you try and charge for the live stream and, you know, get some kind of like pay-per-view thing going? I mean, maybe, but you're going to get so little revenue out of that. Whereas if to some degree members through their, their membership fee, part of what they're getting is, is a, a live stream of nationals that actually provides some interesting value, interesting entertainment. They learn stuff. They, they feel like they are there, even if they haven't been able to physically travel there. So, you know, to some degree, having, having the membership that don't travel to nationals, well, if they're going to subs, if they're going to subsidize nationals with part of their membership fee, which is what is happening and has been happening for years, if they're going to do that, they should at least get a halfway decent live stream out of it to, you know, get some kind of content and some yeah, kind I of learning and, and experience of it. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I don't know what the capabilities of their website are, but I feel like you could, you know, have everybody just log in and see it live. And then if you miss it and you want to see it later, you, you can put it out to the general public on YouTube or whatever for like a replay type thing. But members get to see it live. They log into the website, whatever. Um, yeah. That is That's definitely something. Idea. Um, now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what are your thoughts on using other members' expertise for the organization? And by that, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, let's just say there's roughly 20,000 active members. You're going to have CPAs out there. You have people like Jay Slater who are software engineers who you know, create software programs. You have, um, I don't know the gentleman's name, but practical shooting, uh, analytics, who's mm -hmm. really putting out inform interesting information about hit factors and, you mm -hmm. know, which of the classifiers are doing better than others. Like, it seems like most of them are doing pretty good. They're on point. There are a few that, you know, are, are on the extremes, but what are your thoughts on enlisting those types of people to help the organization. I, I think there's no question that that's, that's the way that it should be a, you know, that the job of a, of a director is, is to direct, not to necessarily be the one compiling the data and doing the frontline work. We, we have the system in USPSA, like, like a lot of, uh, nonprofits where, you know, we have this committee system where people can be appointed and the committee can meet and have discussions and potentially have, you know, resources allocated to them to, to explore possibilities and do research and, and create reports. And as it is right now, when you look down the, the, the list of the committee assignments, it's, it's just musical chairs among the existing, uh, among the, the existing directors. I think the one example that sort of proves the rule here is, is steel challenge where the steel challenge committee has my understanding is I, I haven't interacted with them directly, but my impression is that the steel challenge committee has sort of become a, a de facto mini board specific to steel challenge. So we have Zach Jones as the director of steel challenge. And then he has uh, and then there's a, a committee of, I think five or six others, and they are, they are the subject matter experts. And obviously each of them knows 10, 20, 30 people that they could call on for various forms of expertise. And so to me, that is, that is the model that we should be using. And so, yeah, I, am not a, I'm not a, an accountant. I run a household zero based budget and we put money aside every month and we have no credit card debt. And, and so, you know, I can run a household budget, but I, I don't know how to run a, a $3 million, $4 million nonprofit. But like you say, there are members that do, I've come into contact with a number of them and they say, 
they, they, you know, I'll have a 15 minute conversation with one of them and I'll learn all kinds of things about this, this type of nonprofit law or the way that, you know, financial organizations, uh, you know, the, the idea of interlocking directorships. So, you know, if you have, uh, two, two companies and the directors, all the directors for one company are also directors for the other company, then legally, they're not really that distinct. And if you look at the way a lot of the area, uh, LLCs are organized, that's exactly how they work. And so legally speaking, there's, I am told there's a good case that if someone wanted to go after one of the, the area LLCs and all the directors of an area LLC are also directors of USPSA, then a court might look at that and say, yeah, they're, they're basically the same company. Nice try, you know, setting up a shell company, but it didn't work. And so this idea of, you know, the areas having their own LLCs for, for separate legal liability and whatnot is, is probably not legally well-grounded. Now, would I want to bring a motion to the board based on that one conversation? No, but it at least opens my eyes and says, okay, this is a conversation we should have. We should enlist a few subject matter experts. Maybe we, you know, retain a corporate attorney and ask them this question and pay them for their expertise or something like that. But yeah, I've, I, I've been totally humbled by the number of people who've, who've just been willing to just educate me about all these things. And, and again, to the job of a director is not to be a subject matter expert in everything. It's to find those people, evaluate their trustworthiness, take their advice, get multiple opinions, figure out where they overlap, and then make decisions based on the aggregate of that information, not to, not to be the person who, who knows everything. And I think that's where, again, people tend to lose sight of things that you know, you're really, I look at it as like, again, I think you said it well earlier that you're the voice of Area 6. So when you go into these board meetings, you know, that's what you're voicing when, when you're talking about how you feel and what's going on, assuming that there is that communication with you and, and everybody else there, meaning your constituents. Constituents. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's really a director delegates, you know, and then makes decisions based on information gathered uh, and and the best information that can be gathered and then make a decision based on that for sure. I feel like there that's one of the things where we don't enlist these 20,000 people who have expertise to help out in that manner. Oh, yeah. and And you have to ask yourself you know, never attribute to malice that which can be attributed to stupidity. But I mean, why is that not happening? Why are we not doing that? What does the board not want the membership involved in? Why is it that every committee is just composed of other directors, right? The, the way the, the way the bylaws are written, a committee has to be chaired by a director, but the other members of a, of a committee don't have to be directors. So to me, you would want to spread things out as much as possible so that all the directors can sort of oversee separate committees to, to, to the greatest degree. You wouldn't just have the, the same directors all, you know, oh, you know, they, they meet on Tuesday about the, the multi-gun committee, and then they meet on Friday about the audit committee, and it's the same guys discussing basically the same issues. Ideally, each director would sort of have their area go out, you know, enlist their, um, people that they trust. And, and, it, and it's not the, the individual person who chairs the committee who, who even has to, to choose them. Um, and in fact, the, the, the bylaws require approval, uh, beyond just the, just the, the chair of the committee, but you, you would think each one would sort of have their, their subject matter 
areas that they would delve into and sort of become experts in through their their committees, the one or two committees that they serve on. But you look at at most directors and they're on two or three or four committees. And how much can you focus on when you're doing all of those as a part time responsibility in addition to answering emails and phone calls from from all your, your area members? You, you can't. It's just you can't do it. But it's the way that things have been done for a long time. And I, I think it's obviously inefficient. And again, why? Why, why do they not want to let people, let the membership in? Why do they want to keep the membership outside about basically everything except Steel Challenge? And that I can't answer. <laughs> Maybe when we stop broadcasting. <laughs> uh, now, you did make a comment on... Um, ba, ba, ba. again, I don't know which podcast. <laughs> I, I can't, but, <laughs> I can't keep them straight either. Okay. Uh, but I wrote down, you have a unique take on distributing slots for nationals. And this is my interpretation. Okay. So feel free at the end to go, nope, that's not correct. <laughs> so I I'm saying that now that's sure. why I'm saying it's my interpretation is like, um, I, I feel like you would like to see a class and above competing and everybody else kind of um, volunteering at nationals. Is that correct or wrong? Um, I, I think that describes what the outcome would probably end up looking like, but not necessarily the motivation. Okay. So I, I would say the, the question is, so first of all, basically what I have proposed in the past is predicated on the idea that that we need to have one or at most two nationals a year. And so part of, part of the way that nationals is part of what has been going on with nationals for the past few years is there have been so many of them that there are so many slots that they don't really need to be, um, rationed in any, any meaningful way. Now, I think the carry optics nationals that just happened that the registration just happened for is a, is a great counter example to this, where there were a number of slots that were given out based on individual participation or individual achievement, rather. There was a second group that was given out to to clubs, and then there was a third group that were open for registration. And in that system, so for example, in that, in that open registration system, it was basically a lottery. It was, did you get lucky enough to click the button at the right time that practice score didn't crash? And so I think the, the question is, what do we want the goals of nationals to be? And the way it looks to me is the past few years is the goal of nationals is to be as big as possible. It's to have lots of different nationals so that people can, can attend. There are lots of slots to go around and there in theory, you would think that would mean it would make a lot of money, but it seems like each nationals probably is, is losing a little bit of money. So it's not even really helping the, the, the organization. And I just think that fundamentally what that leads to is this very diluted experience where people are, you know, people are going, talking about going to nationals at, at all times of the year. And, you know, sometimes you have a, a match like carry optics nationals that comes pretty early in the season. To me, the, the idea that I put forth would be nationals would probably be one big match at the end of the year, all the divisions, again, shooting heads up like a little miniature world shoot. And the problem is if you want to do that, then you have a lot fewer slots to give out per division. So if you have something like a, um, a, a 400 slot main match, 
and you have eight divisions, well, that's 50 slots per division. Now, you would you would probably want to prorate those by participation. So you would look and say, uh, you know, we're going to give out 20 slots to the top 20 revolver shooters, and we're going to give out 200 slots to the top 200 carry optics shooters. If carry optics is half the participation in the in the uh, in the year, but then at that point you you basically have to start making these hard decisions, and you have to decide how are you going to award the slots. And so one idea that I've thrown out is is something along the lines of so like I said, right now national slots are given out in these in these three waves. So if you win top ten at nationals, or if you win your class at an area match or you win i think it's first at a at a no because all the states are, are handled through sections so yeah i think it's just if you win your class at an area match or you win uh your class at nationals or or top 10 you get an individual slot and then all these other slots are bundled up and given out to the sections to distribute to whoever they want some sections distribute them to clubs and then clubs distribute them to whoever they want oh it's now my turn for a little dog noise uh some some sections have a have a point series and their their the goal within that section is to reward either the best overall performance or some balance of uh of participation and competition so if somebody shoots all the matches in the point series they might have an advantage even if they're not placing first overall at any one of them so i think something something like that where more of the slots are given out directly based on competition with the idea that nationals should be ideally it's the top shooters in each division coming together once a year to duke it out. And then as a, as a sort of consequence of that, yes, if you are B class or a class, you probably will have a harder time getting a slot because there just won't be that many open registration slots. But again, for, for a very popular nationals like carry optics, unless you happen to know a match director at a, at a local club and you got a slot that way, you, you probably had trouble getting uh, getting slots, getting a slot to that one. And so what we're seeing is a whole new crop of people who wanted to shoot Care Optics Nationals signing up to work it because they knew that that was a sure way to, to get to shoot it and, and to be a part of it. And a lot of this is rooted in the fact that one of the, the pivotal experiences for me was that was uh, before that Steve Anderson class in 2014, just a few months before that, I went out and and worked the the 2014 handgun nationals in in st george utah and to me i think i got a lot more out of that working it than if i had just shown up and paid my match fee and i actually didn't realize at the time i probably could have just paid for it i just assumed nationals was impossible to get into by some b-class guy like me so I, I figured i'd go work it and i think having that a, that experience kind of opened my eyes to what is out there in terms of um, just seeing all the different squads and and how much you know, how much variety there is in the sports and seeing people from all over the country. But, you know, to me, as a as a B class guy, if I if if I can't earn my way in, but I still want to go shoot it, well, then that's my way of, of participating. And that helps to address this other issue that people are starting to recognize where we see the same ROs working the same matches over and over again. And they might not even be regular competitors. They it might have been a while since they since they ran a match. And I think everybody knows that the more regularly you compete, the, the, the sharper you are about the rules and the more you'd rather be ROed by someone like that. And so if we can get the, the people working the match to also be regular competitors, you know, people who aren't just doing it because they have the time off or, or whatever, but they actually 
um, want to be want to participate, but because of the the selection system or whatever, there wasn't enough room. Again, I, I would love it if we could have a three thousand person nationals and everybody who wanted to shoot it could just show up. But at the end of the day, if you want to if you want to have this you know big one big nationals, it's just you have to figure out how to distribute the slots along some system. And you know, to me, the current process of giving them to sections and then the, whoever's a section coordinator gets to gets to figure out who their buddies are sometimes maybe they you know siphon off a few for their friends i mean they're the, the whole there there's so many so much drama that i've that i've become aware of of you know people becoming independent clubs or sections within states splitting off you know there's some states that that have two or three sections and and it's just it's all about national slots and who's the section coordinator and who gets to control it and to me, if, you know, USPSA has the data, they could say, you know, here are the people who shot, you know, it, maybe it's the, maybe it's, you know, top 16 at nationals and the top three at an area match and the, the top one overall at every level two. And, you know, you, you go down the list until you fill all your slots. And so, you know, if you still need more people, then maybe you go to the, the 17th person at nationals and the fourth person at area matches, and you just keep going down the list until all the, the slots are awarded, but it's at least you know, going down some kind of rubric and, you know, people have talked about doing some kind of point series where you get points for shooting multiple level twos or something like that. I, I think there are any number of, of options, but to me, the, the, the sort of framework of was saying, let's come up with a way where nationals being invited to nationals actually means something. Even if you, even if you place, you know, 100th still just being invited means something. I mean, I, I've had the experience where I'll tell my I'll tell my coworkers, oh yeah, I'll be, you know, out the rest of this week. I'm, I'm going to the national championship, whatever. And they're like, wow, you must be really good. And, and I'm like, I just paid, I just paid my entry fee during open registration. There was, there was no qualification process at all. Now I've, I've had this conversation with several people and we've talked about limitations uh, of numbers, but if we're doing one big match at the end of the year, the world shoot was like six days and they had like 12 or 1500 competitors. So how, I mean, it was an extraordinary amount of people and they had a day off of shooting. So I feel mm -hmm. like there's a method out there. There's a way to do this where if you wanted to do one big one, yeah, maybe, you know, five, six days long or whatever, but you know, every year to year that, this is when it's going to be, and, and you'll need to take the time off. I don't know why we couldn't do something similar. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely think if it's going to be one nationals a year, then, then having it be, say, a four-day match where everybody shoots two mornings and two afternoons, that seems like probably about the right amount of time. You, you know, you'd basically, for people taking time off work, you would just take a whole week, You'd have, you know, a couple days of travel, uh, a day to settle in at the range, four days of competition, you know, a day or two back for travel, something like that seems, seems very reasonable. And you just, you know, once you're taking four days off, once you're taking three days off, you might as well just make it a whole week. And so go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, that's what I, I normally do. I normally take seven to nine days off anyway, just because of travel time on each side and not wanting to come back, you know, be gone for days on end five days and then the very first day you get back the next day you're going back to work so i make sure i've got buffer in there so it's 
it's not hard to plan for. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's the thing is I, to me, to me, the goal is not to make nationals, uh, you know, exclusionary and, you know, you, you have to be a GM. God knows you can, enough people have gotten GM cards through, you know, just shooting good classifiers and then underperforming at matches. Like that's not the goal. The goal is to actually reward people who shoot well at matches and have it be something, uh, where it, however we do it, nationals represents the best shooters in the country. And if we can fit in the 600 best shooters in the country instead of 400 in a match, yeah, let's do it. Um, but I, I just, I imagine with a match like that, the bigger it gets, the more demand there will be. And so there will always be more people that, that want to shoot if we do our job, right. You know, if if that big nationals is as successful as we hope it is, then there'll always be more demand for it. And so then the question is, it's, it's like anything else. How do you ration primers? How do you, you know, I mean, you got to come up with some kind of system and, and the system that we've settled on is this, you know, oh, you can only buy a thousand at a time or 5,000 at a time. Okay. But you know, how do we, how do we want to, how do we want to set up the system? Because right now the system is clubs get slots and they give them to whoever they want. And you can say that, that you like that system. And I've had people tell me to my face that the reason some clubs affiliate, the only thing they feel like they're getting for their money are slots for nationals to give to the people who, who volunteer and help with match setup. And that, that that's, if they weren't getting national slots, then they wouldn't see any reason to, to affiliate with USPSA, which, I mean, I gotta say, if that's the truth, then USPSA is doing a, a pretty bad job of providing value to these clubs, whether it's things like the rule book, whether it's things like, you know, in theory, the, the, the dollar fifty or three dollars that you're sending to USPSA should be offset by the additional attendance, right? People say, oh, this is a USPSA match, so I'm going to be willing to drive further for it because I know that it's going to be worth the trip versus Joe Bob's tactical shoot. And so if, if, if clubs really feel like the only thing that they're getting for their activity fees are the, are the national slots, then to me, that's a, that's a sign that USPSA, well, I mean, this is definitely true, but it, it, it is it is another reflection of the fact that USPSA is not doing as much for clubs at the local level as, as they could be. Yeah, I, and I've heard that from several people as well, so I get that. Now, when we were when you were talking earlier, um, and we were talking about nationals, you said the data is there, but I wonder. Is, you know, we we talk about let's just say financials or whether that be globally for USPSA or specifically like nationals or something else, um, or even nationals participation, I wonder if the data may be there, but is it, how accessible is it? You know, I don't, I don't know how accessible all this data is. I don't know what we have in place to manage any of that and be able to extract it reasonably easily to go, Oh, here's the information. Mm -hmm. And I say that because we keep talking about, you know, where are the P and L's for this month or this quarter or that quarter or whatever quarter, nothing seems to be easily obtained. So I wonder if those things are even there. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, so there's two questions. One, I mean, we know without a doubt that, that, you know, through things like, scores being submitted to uspsa.org that that the data is flowing in now what kind of a system is it going into is it in a place where it can be analyzed yeah that's a that's a whole other system or a whole other question 
um, you know, I've, I've had interesting discussions, uh, one of them with uh, competition shooting analytics, as you mentioned, and, you know, he and I have talked about, you know, how do we, how do we come up with, with an, an algorithm, just a set of rules for determining a high hit factor. So it's not, you know, we look at the data and then we kind of, uh, that seems a little low. That seems a little high. Take, take the whole manual review process out of it and just make it whatever, whatever the set of rules are, how do we make it so that the, the high hit factors are set consistently for every, every hit factor, whereas, uh, for every classifier, whereas in, in every division as well. Whereas right now it feels like a bit of a crapshoot where they've been manually adjusted over time. And you might have some division where the, the hit factor in production is higher than it is in single stack, just because there, there were more people shooting production or carry optics or something like that. And, uh, you know, the, the, the question is, yeah, is, is that classifier data in a system where it can be sort of extracted and and those kinds of analytics can be done on it that i don't know and this is again one of those places where can we can we enlist the help of members can we is this something where for uh you know security privacy reasons this just needs to be something where we we contract out to a technology company i i don't know um i that is something that i do that i that that is that is one type of expertise that i actually you know, firsthand could bring to the board. I mean, my, my profession is a, I am a software developer. I understand databases and data storage and APIs. And so mm-hmm. I, I could, you know, that is one place where I, I could potentially have some input. Um, I, I don't necessarily see that as, as the sort of sole, um, thing that I could contribute. You know, I have a lot of thoughts about other parts of it, but, but if you want to talk about day-to-day, you know, career domain expertise, I, 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 if someone wanted to come in and, you know, make a proposal and totally blow smoke up our butts about something, I, I probably could see through it. And so there, yeah, the, the question is, is the data going into a place where it can be used? It's anybody's right. guess, but the, but the data, the data is out there. Um, you know, for example, people have, have proposed something like, you know, could you, um, could you have some kind of system where, there's a, you know, a rolling 12 month average of all the classifiers that you've shot in the last 12 months, um, you know, highs and lows, none of this dropping anything, a certain percentage below. And you, you know, you base, you, you basically come up with a top to bottom list of, Hey, you know, here are the best shooters based on submitted classifiers or here are the best shooters. I mean, you could do something like, um, Jay Slater's ELO thing. Where, you know, this year here's here, you know, when you match everybody else up and you take all the data from all the, all the level twos, here's how people rank. I mean, they, they're, I'm not dogmatic about the actual method. To me, it's just about setting the goal of how can we make it so that you actually, you know, nationals is, is a chance for the best in the country to sort of come together and, and duke it out and, and see who's on top. Uh, but yeah, we, how do we get there? I think the the world's our oyster on that one. Right. Yeah, I agree. I'm not writing down fast enough. I had a question earlier and <laughs> I didn't want to I didn't want to miss what you were saying, you know, I wanted to maintain that train of thought, so I didn't write it down. Um So going back to I'm going to I'm going to sidetrack us a little bit because there was one thing that I wrote down and that was 
talking about the financial aspect of things. I know some people like the magazine, some people don't like the magazine. But if the org is looking at saving money, I feel like one of the things they could do, and I've always looked every year I've um, re-upped my membership, renewed my membership, is there isn't even an option to just get the magazine electronically. You know, there. I feel mm. like for those people that maybe would prefer the magazine because maybe their internet is an issue or maybe they don't have it, whatever the case is, you could still get it that way. But for the rest of the other half of the membership that doesn't necessarily need to have a physical copy, mm -hmm. it'd be a nice way to just say, look, I don't stop sending me, save me the postage you spend every year sending it to me and, and printing it out. Just send it to me electronically and I can flip through it and read it that way. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think the, even, well, yeah, even the way that the, the pricing, I haven't gone through it recently, but I've seen people posting the screenshots of basically you really have to work to even find the, the, the associate membership where you, you save that money now. Yeah. To me, if you have to trick people into getting something, then you're, it's not a very good product to me, the. The, the, the magazine should be something that people actually feel like is worth getting and reading. It should be something where it's, I mean, my, my impression of it from, you know, what I've seen, maybe, you know, maybe there's other stuff going on that I'm not aware of, but the impression that I have of it is, is it's basically anybody that, that comes to USPSA and says, Hey, I want to write an article about this. It'll basically get published because there's just not that much demand and they just want to fill the pages. Whereas to me, if you if you looked at it as something that you were really trying to make something that was beneficial to the membership you would be reaching out to to instructors reaching out to subject matter experts reaching out not just to the you know the same people over and over again but actually reach out and say hey would you mind you know would you be interested in contributing an article to 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 the, the USPSA magazine or front site I, I to me it, to me it'll always be front site uh, especially well that's a different discussion but but the the idea that if we're going to if we're going to do this thing if we're going to have this magazine if we're going to print it and send it out let's make it something worthwhile and yes to your point if uh you know let's say let's say it's a $30 membership you know where you still get you're not you're not covering the uh the the postage and the printing but you're still getting access to the valuable content we should make it something that that people actually want the fact that it's such a joke the fact that nobody wants it to me is is just another one of these failures of of the board to actually organize and, and do something well. It's one of these things that, that just keeps limping along because it's always been done, but it's be, it's not even half-assed, right? It's, I mean, it's, it, it, it could be, and, and no, I mean, no disrespect to the people who take the initiative and, and write the articles and put them in there, but it, it definitely is one of these things where there is, there's not really this, um, it's not, it's not being run like an actual magazine where you go out and, and commission pieces. It's, it's just, the, the rewards to doing it are so low that it's become this self-sustaining cycle where nobody reads it because there's nothing good in it. So there's nothing good in it. So nobody reads it. And I mean, even things like, you know, just having some editorial control there, there in the days of, uh, in the days of match write-ups where you would have somebody write, you know, some description of a stage. Well, that's great, but we have SketchUp for a lot of these diagrams. Now just put the stage diagram in the, in the article. 
shows say, yeah. hey, this was a really good stage at some obscure match across the country that you didn't go to. But, you know, here here are the, the three best stages and feel free to steal them for your local match. You know, make it make it a resource that people actually appreciate. And yes, in theory, all of that information is in the USPSA stage library. But that's another one of those things where without any sort of curation, it's just you got to you got to do all the work to kind of trudge through it. Whereas if somebody, you know, goes to a match and says, here were the three best stages. I mean, listen, I love seeing pictures of people shooting with the the, 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 the slide all the way back and the brass just coming out of the gun. I mean, it's cool. But you see that you see. 20 of those pictures for single match, they all kind of blur together. But if you can, if you can really add some value to, to those articles and make it something that people want, there's, there's opportunity there that to me is just being totally squandered. Again, is this a, is this the thing that I'm running on? Not necessarily, but I think if, if it's something that, that can be improved some way that we can make the organization more functional, more productive and more healthy, I think it's something worth spending some time on certainly. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I've, I haven't seen it. Um, so I was just flipping through because one of the things that I like about the magazine is, you know, we do the survey before nationals. And I don't know that I've seen those numbers from the survey, at least not in the magazine, but I could be wrong. Uh, there was an article in the November issue that said carry optics by the numbers, but when you flip through it, I didn't, at least electronically, I didn't see any of the data from the survey that we did. You know, like each year, like right. this many people shoots Canfolio, this many people shoot mm -hmm. this and, and all of that. It doesn't really mean anything, but that is what does interest me. Um, so... Well, and, and I mean, it is, it definitely is a source of pride for, I mean, for example, the, the blue bullets, which happens to be a, a company local to me here in North Carolina, they, you know, I think their banners trumpet the fact that they're the most used bullets at nationals, you know, four or five, six years running, whatever it is. And right. so, you know, that, that, that means something. And so if, if people, again, people should, people should feel like the USPSA magazine is a place to be informed about new trends and and new you know whether it's the the sponsors paying to be in there because they want their word to get out to an engaged membership that's actually going to pay for things actually buy a product um or you know if it if it if it is just a um you know even even a sort of traditional gear review where hey the manufacturer sent me this um you know here's my thoughts on it i'm gonna you know i'm gonna send it back or whatever but just having having that kind of content from people more 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 than just the you know few regular contributors that have that have become the regulars, which again, don't get me wrong, I I, I like I like the idea that that we're producing something of um, of substance, right? That something that is the journal of the sport. I mean, I I've gone back when I've been trying to do things like research the history of production division and understand what the discussion was like when it was being founded. I've gone back through the PDFs, which are all online. Um, you can you can actually read back to the very first issue of, of front sight and it's all there and just seeing the ads seeing seeing what the articles are about to me there's a it helps me put what we're doing in perspective that the sport that we're building today is going to be the sport that someone's looking back on 20 years from now and so you know to some degree even just thinking about okay 
USPSA magazine isn't just a way to review whatever the new hotness gun is, but also to be a snapshot of of History. what happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you look at you look at the, the article. Um, I think I think you men wrote it about the, the world shoot that basically said not a whole lot. It was just a bunch of pictures. And, you know, here was this match. Here's a bunch of people who shot. Here's how they finished. It, it was it was, you know, it was it was almost devoid of of real interesting content. Um, it was like, hey, we, we need someone to write an article about the world shoot. And he picked the short straw and he phoned in 800 words or whatever he could about it. And there's just there's no passion there where is there somebody on the on the world shoot team that if they felt like it was worth it could be commissioned to write two or 3000 words that would be really interesting about the world shoot. I'm sure it's there, but th that I feel like, I feel like Becky Yackley could have done a good job with that. And I, and that's not just, I'm not sitting here to, to throw anything at ye men, but going with your idea, someone who's maybe more of a writer. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, it's listen, if, if he doesn't, if he doesn't want to, uh, you know, if it doesn't light his fire to, to really do that. And, and I mean, I, listen, I enjoy, I enjoy writing. I, you know, I enjoy the podcast to me, the, the podcast is sort of a spoken form of, you know, being a single person podcast. It, it is closer, I think, to writing an essay than, um, than, you know, some of these conversational podcasts. Um, you know, so, so part of me, you know, I, I'd love to be a, a, a contributor, but again, it's, it's one of these where it's this chicken and egg problem where, does anybody pay attention to it? And so you almost need to, to, to give it this fresh coat of paint and this, this new critical mass and say, Hey guys, like from here on out, this is, you know, things are changing and it's going to be something that the people are really going to want to pay attention to. But obviously you, you have to have somebody who's looking at it and focusing on it and saying, how can we make this as good as it can be? Not how can I fulfill this obligation and get on with the other stuff that I want to do? Yeah, I think why, well, and I bring it up because the other part of this, I think, is one, we, we it's a way to save some money somewhere. Two, <clears throat> I I feel like, and the, the reason I sent you the thing about live streaming is really more about advertising the organization, getting more exposure. I feel like there's very little social media stuff going out there when there's a lot that can be done. Um and the magazine, I feel, could be used in that regard as well. You know, you, you can have your information section. You can have a historical. I, I just feel like it's it's underutilized or maybe it just needs to be changed the way it's utilized. But social media and live streaming definitely need to be more pronounced. Like, I didn't even realize I was shooting that match two years ago. And I saw cameras up, but I didn't realize they were live streaming the whole thing. Mm. I thought they were, I thought it was just, oh, shooting USA is here. They're recording stuff. Things are up. I didn't realize it was live streamed. So would have been, you know, and, and I'm a member and I was shooting it. Yeah. So it would have been, inter yeah. it would have been better for me to know. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying, dag nabbit, I didn't even know. I wish I had known. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And that's, I mean, that's the thing is sponsors sponsors will pay money to have their brand and their name and their product put in front of people who are engaged and interested. And so, you know, some people they pay and have their ad in, in the USPSA magazine, I don't know, out of some kind of sense of obligation, maybe, but it should be one of those things where sponsors want to be 
on the live stream. They want to be in the magazine because people are paying attention to it. And you sort of have this virtuous cycle where your people are, are willing to pay healthy ad rates. And it's, it's actually a, a way that, that the, the magazine is a center, uh, you know, it actually at least pays for itself, right. Either through the, the, the member contributions or the sponsorships and, and by the same token in the, in the live stream, you could, you know, you could figure out, is it, is it ad breaks? Is it ads in the corner? Is it, is it just a part of sponsoring the match that, you know, your banners will be seen on the live stream and, and, you know, but, but to me as a shooter, having actually having ads come to me and having, having things that are relevant to my interests brought to my attention is actually a service. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll hear about something, but when I actually see a review of it or I see an ad for it and it actually clicks and I say, oh, okay, that's what this thing is. And I, and I understand it, then, then I actually feel informed. And so I want, I want the various advertising supported aspects of the sport, you know, a live stream, a magazine and, and matches to some degree, uh, you know, sponsoring a match shouldn't feel like generosity. It shouldn't feel like charity. It should feel like, Hey, I, I have a product and I want to advertise it to a bunch of engaged, passionate people because I think they're going to want to buy it. And so I'm, I'm going to be willing to potentially, you know, instead of just foisting a bunch of product, have it actually be worth them writing a check or something. Um, I think that's a, you know, that's a whole other ball of wax. You know, the idea of, of when you get a bunch of product from a sponsor, you just have to give away. Well, it doesn't really help the match, but if you can get a check that helps with buying, you know, equipment for the range or bottled water, or, you know, being able to have cash payouts for the match, that kind of thing, it's a, it's a whole different environment. And I think part of the reason we've, we've gotten into this, this situation where most matches accept so much product is because at the end of the day, sponsors don't feel like they're really getting that much for their money when they, when they sponsor it. So it does kind of feel like just, oh, you know, we're going to support you out of the goodness of our hearts, but you know, it's not necessarily the, the, the best advertising all year, which again, you would think advertising to the most dedicated shooters in the hobby, you'd think that would be a, a prime audience to advertise to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then getting it, the word out there to the public that, you know, they can see what's going on um with one of the premier pistol shooting sports in the world you know that's how you build that base and and get that sponsorship more and more of it yeah and and you know it, it used to be and and i think you know to some degree still is that if your product can make it in uspsa then then it shows that it you know can stand up to really being beaten on yeah okay tactical dudes can drop it in the mud or drive over it with their truck or whatever but you know, can a gun shoot 20,000 rounds and, and only need minor parts replaced or something like that? You know, that's the kind of where that something being that, that if something can be a gun of champions in USPSA, not just, you know, by one or two sponsored shooters, but something that guys are actually paying their own money for and are regularly winning championships with. I, I mean, I think we're seeing that with the shadow two right now. It is, it has become a complete monster, even with people who never shoot matches, just because it has become the premier USPSA gun. And, and that's the thing is, you know, with, with things like red dots, you know, it should be the, the, and, and again, care optics is doing a lot of this, but the, the crucible that these red dots are being put into of tens of thousands of rounds is, is showing which ones are reliable and which ones are not. And, and that data, you know, manufacturers should want to be known as the gun, the red dot, the holster, the, whatever it is that 
is preferred by USPSA shooters because they know it'll stand up to the wear, even though most people that buy it won't put more than a thousand rounds on it. That that's okay. But but we you know we should be that that uh, that proving ground that that com- that manufacturers want to be a part of. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't disagree with you. And I think that there's a way to do that. Um, so we'll get into it real quick here. I've been trying to devise a way. <laughs> I even put out a survey about live streaming. And that's what I sent you were all those uh, responses and, and the, the numbers. And and it's an overwhelming number. It wasn't a lot of people. It was a 42, something like that, 43 uh, people that responded and filled it out, but like 90% of them were like, yes, I would watch it. So even though it was a small snapshot, it was the vast majority of them that were like, absolutely. And they all had different ideas. And I know you did something. So I wanted to take this opportunity. You were basically, it seemed like restreaming through OBS. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I took the, the, the YouTube live stream that they were doing and then, yeah, just overlaid my, um, you know, my webcam over just up in the corner, just so you could see me talking. But then, you know, I had a little scoreboard going using just the text feature. And at that match, they were doing instant updates. And so because I was a few minutes behind the actual live stream on uh, YouTube, by the time they finished shooting, I was able to just type in the score. And so I was doing a little scoreboard showing the shooter, their points down and then their percentage just to, to kind of, you know, give people a sense of, and I think maybe the times you could see, oh, you know, someone was two seconds faster, but they dropped two deltas or something like that. And by, by using that, that time delay of, of, like you said, restreaming the, the YouTube stream, I was able to skip over the dead time. I was also able to go back and do an instant replay. So if somebody did something interesting, I sort of highlighted it, tried to add a little bit of commentary. And I think, I think there's, you know, when we say live stream, I don't think literally, you know, up to the second is, is the key thing. It's that people want to feel like they're sort of watching something that's, that that's currently going on, you know, that's happened within the last hour maybe. And so by using that flexibility, instead of just straight, you know, streaming the way that it was being done, where sometimes there was nothing going on on any stage and it would literally be a live stream of an empty bay, you could, you know, just, just using just sort of jumping around in the timeline of what had recently been streamed, I was able to keep a sort of constant, uh, you know, there was always something to watch. And again, I, I felt like it was one of these things where I was just sitting at home watching the live stream and just thinking to myself, okay, it could be better in this way, in that way, in this way, screw it. Let me just, let me just try Let me just see what I can do. And then, you know, over the course of an hour or whatever, um, I think I came up with something that was, that was at least a good starting place. And obviously, you know, you could do something on site, you could do interviews before and after, but even just taking the footage that they had where they didn't have the shooting USA guy, you know, camera that walks up to the shooter right afterward to get their take on it, which I mean, honestly, in a lot of cases, right after a stage, you're still kind of processing it. So you're not the most, uh, the most eloquent, but even just, even just taking a few static camera shots, which in a lot of ways was interesting because it gave you the same view of two different shooters. And so by having that static camera, I mean, if you wanted to get fancy, you could do some kind of overlay or side-by-side side where you could actually see two shooters, you know, moving through the same section of the stage in different ways or something like that. But even with just a, a few static cameras, I, I think there, there was a huge amount of, of opportunity to do something interesting in terms of 
streaming the, the the best shooters duking it out and seeing them sort of trade stage wins and and this that and the other and uh yeah i just i i think even even without you know some of those some of those survey responses were talking about you know drone footage and and having multiple <laughs> like handheld cameras all live streaming right i mean sure that stuff would be way cool I, I would love it if if we could do something like that but even with just a couple of tripod mounted static cameras cutting between them being able to do a uh being able to do a um you know instant replay type thing it would be you know if you could if you could have it so that the you knew which targets were getting scored with what oh i guess the other thing that i did that was somewhat interesting i did have the um the stage diagram and i was able to flip to that and kind of see something about what they were shooting but obviously the diagram wasn't the stage exactly as it was set up so you know have right. some way to not the exact shooter you don't have to have a hat cam on every single shooter but have some kind of first person representation of what what target it is that they're shooting or something like that and then know oh he dropped you know two charlies on target seven flip to the diagram target seven is this one right here and then you go back and watch the replay oh yeah he was you know really hot coming into that position right you could you could do that kind of analysis as long as the targets are being scored in the same order you know and you can correlate what's in the the practice score live scores with uh with that i don't you know some people talk about doing live scoring and like showing the scores over every single target i find that stuff really kind of distracting and at the end of the day when you're when you're talking about super squad guys the assumption is that every shot's going to be an alpha and anything that isn't is remarkable and so you don't actually need to show two alpha on every target that's two alpha because it's going to be most of them it's where were the Charlies, where were the Deltas and why? And that's, you know, that's sort of the interesting stuff because again, going through a stage, it's usually going to be lots of alphas with, with guys at the super squad level. And then the question is, you know, what caused him to pull off this target early and drag the shot into the, into the hardcover or, uh, you know, whatever it is. And, and that, that one or two shots is what the whole stage kind of pivots on. The rest of it is just kind of table stakes. You know what I mean? Yes. And I, I, now, where I do, um, so like I applied for a media badge for um, nationals. I, I haven't, it's been a while and I haven't heard a word, not a peep. I even sent in an email to a couple of people. I haven't heard anything. Um, and I sent that email as a follow-up 90 days out saying, look, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. 90 days from nationals. I'm trying to find out, you know, I'm trying to plan accordingly, prep, and I haven't heard anything. But going back to my point and why I brought that up, I do think like what you were doing, um, it would be a very good start for things and, and how they could begin. But I do think like a drone picture of the finished stage with nobody on it. So like yes. completed stages, mm -hmm. nobody on them is the perfect overlay. And because you could then use it to say, this is the target where, you know, it came down to JJ and Nils on this last stage. And this is the target where one of 100%. them, you know, missed or they stumbled coming into this position. And that's what the difference was in the, the national title. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And have like a little, um, you know, video of like the target presentation on certain movers. So as you're talking about, oh, here's how he shot that swinger, you can kind of have a picture in picture of what the swinger is that you're talking about or something like that. Yeah, I think having having some way like that where it doesn't have to be live, 
but but you can have some representation that gives people a sense of of what they're shooting. Yeah, I, I think I think the I think the, the the overhead drone shot, you know, label the target numbers and everything. So when you're talking about T4, you know, everybody can see. Yeah, yeah. that's a I think that's a great idea. Um, I, I do have to say it, it's interesting. Um, I, I so what when you say that you wanted a, a, a media credential, how is that different from just kind of showing up and watching? Like in your mind, what were you hoping that would uh, that would give you access to that you wouldn't have otherwise? Well, uh, apparently, according to the rules, if you don't have a media badge, you're not authorized to take video footage of anybody. Ah, okay. Other than yourself. So with a media badge, um, I believe you are now giving explicit permission to take pictures and video footage of shooters during the act of competition. Gotcha. So that's where... Um, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't mind going and covering it mm -hmm. just from a podcast perspective. Right. And get out there. And that's why I put the survey out, you know, like what would people want to see? And that's where I think the end of the day ESPN hour out, you know, 60 to 90 minute yes. just review of, look, this was day one. This is what yes. happened, you know, and have all that stuff there. And then you move into day two. And I think it really gets... Because look, going in from day one to day two, meh, look, you could go back to 2020 when Max had a really crappy first day. Hmm. Uh, he was like third or fourth. He wasn't doing great. Then the next day he comes out and he wins like the first seven. <laughs> he wins like all the stages. Tell the story. Weave the narrative. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And then at the end of day two, you're like, okay, now this is where... You know, the the rubber meets the road because, okay, you know, someone will keep using that same example. Max has come back. He's in the lead now. Or he, you know, and there's someone breathing down his neck. Day three, here are the stages. Maybe not necessarily Max's strengths. Maybe they are. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're someone else's strengths, you know. Maybe it's Casey Eusebio who's breathing down the neck of somebody. And there are a lot of short, fast courses. You're like, uh-oh. Someone, yeah. you know, that dude's fast, he's quick, he's a good shooter. There's a chance he could overtake, you know what I mean? Just a lot of different little things like that. But I feel like there's, I don't know, and me, maybe I'm just thinking completely outside the box in a, well, I won't use that word, in a dumb way. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe it's just no, completely wanna... unreasonable. But, but it would be cool to just see 10 different experiments, eight of them aren't going to work. One of them is going to be fantastic. One, you know, whatever it is, but just have people out there trying different stuff. Just, just seeing what works and taking the things that that do work and improving on them. Um, I I will say to to like on a on a bit of a a downer note, I what you said about reaching out to to someone from USPSA headquarters staff and not not hearing back that is that is another story that I've actually both experienced myself and uh, heard, heard from the members. And, you know, these are from people, th these are not volunteers. These are not shooters. These are people who are 40 hour a week employees of USPSA. And, you know, for example, when I submitted my, my petition to run for area director, the email that I got in response was, okay, great. We'll process this and I'll let you know with next steps. And 10 weeks later, I followed up with an email that said, Hey, is there something going on? I'm just checking in. What's the status of this? And I got an email back that said, oh, sorry, I thought I'd emailed you. Yeah, you're good to go. 
Um, I've heard mm. from people trying to form clubs saying that it, it took them, you know, they were ready to run their first match and they still hadn't gotten their, uh, their club affiliation paperwork processed and their, 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 their club number issued to be able to run their first match. And so they were having to, to, to wait to run matches because the, the, the office was so unresponsive. So again, I, I, you know, I hate to, to, to put it on a downer note, but it's, it's even little stuff like this where even just brass tacks day-to-day stuff is not being done well by, by USPSA as it's currently structured. What's causing that? I don't know, but I can see what's going on. I'm seeing the pattern from my personal experience, from people I'm talking to. And we, as the, as the representative of the, of the organization, we need to, we need to be fixing this. We need to be addressing these issues. You know, one of the discussions that's been happening is, you know, what is the role of the president right now? You know, the way that it's been cut back to halftime and this, that, and the other. And to me, the, the president especially should be the person with whom the buck stops. It's the person who, if you have an issue and you can't get anybody else to care about it, you can go to them and they can say, hey, talk to this person or, hey, let me figure that out and get back to you, right? It should be the the, the person that at the end of the day can can be the catch-all. And, you know, certainly I would like, you know, as area director to, to be able to resolve as many issues as I can. But if it's something that, that you know, requires somebody who's actually on the clock and you're know, spending more time actually interacting with the headquarters staff, then, then maybe that's a managing director thing, or maybe it's a president thing. But to me, I, I don't see that from, from the current structure of, uh, of, of the managing director or the president in terms of sort of being those people that members can take their concerns to and trust that they'll be resolved when, you know, other issues have, have failed. And when, you know, when you feel like nobody's listening at a certain point, you just stop talking. So do you, do you have any ideas on what it might be to correct that? And, and let me give you an example too, because it's, it's no different than the recent notes that have come out about a board member wanting the managing director to give them what the president's responsibilities are. And I thought all of that would have been laid out during the, the bylaw changes and all of that. So I use that as an example. Do you, do you have any ideas already formulated as to how those types of things get corrected? Or is that something you're going to have to just get in there and, and see what's going on in order to figure out a path? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the nuts and bolts, I mean, it's almost certainly some kind of some kind of structural issue with, with the way communication is happening where things are going into some system and then getting forgotten about and, and not followed up on. And so... You know, is it that a uh, you know some 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 task management reminder system needs to be set up? I you know I I don't know, but at the end of the day, it's I, I see this sort of larger problem that it seems like everybody, all the directors and the president and the managing director, they're just trying to keep their heads down. They've got enough angry people coming after them that they don't really have the the bandwidth to to really say, okay, I hear your concern. Give me a few days. Let me run this down. And, and figure out what's going on and get back to you. I just, I don't see or hear that level of sort of ownership happening at, at any level of the organization. And I think, I mean, to some degree, it's, it's, it needs to be a change of, of, of people. Um, and when you reach out to somebody, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've worked at a number of different workplaces and some places you work at, you reach out to somebody and, and you feel like 
they're going to get to the bottom of it and they're going to follow up with you. And then other people, you feel like you have to send them a reminder and, and keep nagging them until they finally get what you want. And we need more of those people who are going to take ownership, have that, have that sense of, you know, do the right thing and follow up. And, you know, some of that is, is who's elected. Some of that is who's hired. Uh, but, but as a culture, we just need to, we need to make it unacceptable for stuff like, you know, like what you're talking about, where somebody wants to, I mean, you're, you're talking about showing up to the nationals, not as a shooter, but just as, just, just as someone who wants to provide free publicity. Yes. Yeah. You're going to travel on your own dime, come take video, broadcast, give attention to the sport. I mean, how is that not a high priority thing for the health of the organization? can't answer. So, so that's what, that's what I'm saying is I, 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 to to your question, I I can't necessarily answer either, but you know, part of it's a cultural thing. Part of it's, uh, you know, just figuring out, okay, where, you know, it might be at a a very low level. Okay. You know, let's, let's implement some kind of system where emails that haven't been marked as resolved or responded to within seven days get brought back up through some, from some system. I mean, it could be something like that, where we just need a better, a better way to manage the information. Maybe we need, you know, maybe we need to hire more people. I I mean, something, I think a lot of the discussion around the current financial situation is all about cost cutting. And I think you can definitely get yourself into a death spiral that way. USPSA is fortunate in that, in that we do have fairly significant cash reserves to, to the tune of a couple million dollars. And so if part of the way that we get ourselves out of this problem is by having to spend a little more money in the short term, make the deficit a little bit bigger in the short term, but it actually meaningfully sets us up for success in the future, that's okay, right? We don't have to cost cut our way out of this budget deficit, but we can't just raise dues and just double down on all the mistakes either. So, you know, if it's if it's something that requires spending a little money to fix, you know, bring in some technology solution, I, I don't know. But addressing these issues and even just, just aggregating them, just saying, well, I'm hearing this from multiple different directions. I've experienced it personally. Let me get to the bottom of it instead of just saying, eh, well, you know, everybody's busy. That's someone else's problem. And just, yeah. just moving on is, is, um, the things, things just continue to get worse and worse. If nobody steps up and starts to take ownership and say, I'm going to, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. So, uh, so I have one last question in closure, but before I do that, I want to ask you, is there anything that you want to say before I ask my final question? Uh, no, just to, that I, I really appreciate the, the chance to come on. And I honestly have, have really enjoyed the conversation. It's, it's always interesting just to get a chance to bounce ideas around with, you know, with someone else passionate about the sport who wants something, wants the best for it. And, um, if, if people do want to hear sort of more of my ideas, and sort of more of my thoughts on things. I, I do have a podcast. It's called Short Course. It's available on all the major podcast platforms. If it's not in whatever player you use, send me an email, ben at barryshooting.com, and I'll, I'll get it added. Uh, I do a 20 to 30 minute episode every week about sometimes it's topical stuff, sometimes it's historical stuff, but I, I just try and always provide something useful and interesting. And, uh, if you, you know, you can go back to the episodes, like I was talking about from 2018 before I was ever running and hear how I was talking about stuff back then and just sort of get a sense of who I am and and how I think about things. And hopefully that'll give you a sense of whether you think I would be a good 
representative for your way of thinking and your perspective on the sport on the board. And if you have any questions or you just want to have a conversation or say you disagree with something or you agree with anything, send me an email. I, I really genuinely enjoy getting perspectives from outside the little bubble that I'm in, you know, Instagram, Facebook, they don't like to, to, to expose my content beyond the people who already follow me. So it ends up being an echo chamber. And I know that, and I, I just, you know, it's always interesting to be able to, to hear different perspectives and to come on shows like this and, and be exposed to a new audience and, and get feedback on, Hey, I think you're really off base here and, and learn stuff, you know, to me, that that's really what I, what I appreciate. So in, you know, message me on Instagram, send me an email, Ben at barryshooting.com. And, uh, yeah, just, I, I really hope whether I, you know, however the election goes, the, the contacts and the information and this whole process has, has been very enlightening. And, um, I, I feel like it's definitely made me more engaged and I'll, I'll be, I'll be involved in the sport in one way or another for sure. And, and, uh, so I'm just, I'm just excited, honestly excited for the first time in a long time about hopefully things are starting to turn around and, and we can make a positive impact and, and reverse some of these things that was really making me start to pull back from the sport a few years ago. So, okay. <clears throat> yeah, definitely go check out his podcast and you learn more about him. That's, that's what I did before we talked. <laughs> um, so the last question I have is give me, it's kind of a summary too, but give me your top three priorities. If you get elected as the area six director. Uh, number one obviously has to be figuring out the, the financial issues and, and getting it so that USPSA is on a stable financial footing. Number two would be transparency, just giving the members more of an idea of what they're, what's being done, how processes are being reached. You know, it, when, when the limited optics hit factors, the provisional hit factors are put out, how were, how were they arrived at? Just things like that. How, how are these decisions being made? Not just here are the tablets being handed down from the mountain, go obey them. Uh, and then I, I think the the third thing would just be bringing more of a, a a competitive perspective to the rules. So when we're talking about things like, you know, equipment changes or or rules changes, you know, not just saying what's the what's the easiest thing to to administer, but uh, but providing some of that that competitor perspective that I think can be lacking on the board um, as to you know wait you're going to allow flashlights with no weight limit or you know you you know someone's going to game this you know that kind of thing and uh just just provide that that perspective which i don't see necessarily reflected in, in a lot of the board discussions okay well, i like it um hopefully uh people listen and they can decide for themselves so ben i want to thank you for coming on absolutely it was a genuine pleasure until next time don't be a little bitch yeah